This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning. It's good to see you today. We've got a wonderful crowd and it's such a blessing as was mentioned. We've got a beautiful day outside. The weather's nice and temperate and cool and and we got a large group of God's people today gathered together and it's such an encouragement to see that you're here. Uh, I appreciate the weekend and all the work that's been done. I think y'all picked some tremendous and impactful topics that we need to be looking at as God's people. Uh, I won't say anything about my own speech, but I really was encouraged by uh, the things that I was uh, taught yesterday and learned about our God and about his existence and things that increase and strengthen our faith. And, and I hope that this morning as we look into God's word that, that God's word will continue to do that, that it will embolden us, that it will uh, motivate us to press forward in our faith and to step out in faith for God and to do more in his kingdom. Uh, we're going to talk about Martha and Mary this morning. And I know I say that and a lot of times the guys just check out mentally. They're like, oh, we're going to talk about women this morning. Well, I, I, first of all, don't check out, guys. Uh, we're going to read the story first. It's just a very few verses. Uh, and then we're going to kind of introduce some things about Mary and Martha and why I've chosen to talk about this, this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with us there. I will have the scriptures up on the screen for your convenience if you prefer to do that. Uh, probably most of the verses will be out of the New King James Version or the King James Version, uh, just for your information. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, the Bible records, Now it happened as they went, and that's talking about Jesus and his disciples, that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much, serve, with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So just five verses that we read here in the book of Luke, and, and I find this story very remarkable for a lot of reasons, and one of those reasons is, uh, during Jesus' ministry, there's, there's no telling how many interactions that he had with people, how many conversations that he had with people. And not all those things are recorded, but this little short story in five verses about two sisters and what happened in their house is recorded and immortalized in the Scripture by the Holy Spirit through Luke, and that's remarkable. That tells us there's really something here that God wants us to see and learn from this interaction. And I'm afraid that sometimes when we read this story, uh, we have these kind of preconceived notions about Mary and Martha, and we, we, we wrongly apply some things here. And I'm speaking from my personal experience. And for one, I want you to know this is not a story about the kitchen. We're going to have some things to say about hospitality, but don't get the wrong message here. This is not about kitchen work. It's not about women's work. This story is much greater than that. And the other thing I want to say is this. Martha often gets a bad rap. She ends up somehow being the villain of this tale, like the antagonist of the story. She's not. 
She did some things that were worthy of his criticism. So we're going to criticize Martha a little bit because the Lord criticized her for some wrong attitudes and things that were going on there. But she's not the villain of the story. And, and another thing that I really want us to think about is this. This is greater than just a tale of two sisters. This is a tale of two hearts, a tale of two perspectives, and a tale of two lives. And so as we look at this story, uh, let's try to look at it through that lens. And what I want to do first is I want to look at the good qualities that we see in Martha here in this story. And again, it's a very short story. We have other things in the Gospels that talk about Martha and her, and her character. And so we want to be careful and not decide what kind of person that we think she is in a negative way condemning her. But there are some things that Scripture has to say about Martha's character. So the first thing that I notice in this story is that it says that Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. Whose house was this? It was Martha's house. And, you know, uh, historians and, and scholars believe that Lazarus and Mary uh, lived with Martha in her home. She was the mistress of the home. And so we see this woman was a woman of hospitality, a woman who used her home for that purpose. And I want to ask you this morning, as God's people, how do you use your home? We've enjoyed great hospitality this weekend, and even though we've just been kind of crossing paths a lot, we've... It's good for us to spend time with the Duggars. I hadn't met them before, and so we get to sit down and talk and learn about each other and talk about godly things and important things. And, and I think we minimize that because we live in such a busy culture today where we're always running from here to there, and all of a sudden our homes have become a fortress rather than having an open door for God's people to come in and out of. And I believe God has blessed us with nice homes, and we need to use those homes for his glory, and they need to be a conduit for God's blessings. How do we use our home? We'll have more to say about that in just a little bit, but you know, that's the kind of woman that Martha was. She shared her home with other people. God wants that from you. In Romans chapter 12, we read given to hospitality. And when you look at this word given to, that's sort of maybe an ambiguous phrase, but it means to pursue after a thing, to pursue hospitality. You know, when we think about someone pursuing something, we may say they've got laser focus. They're, they're focused on that thing and they're moving toward that thing. Is that really who we are? People who are pursuing after hospitality. That's who she was. You know what we see later? We see in other, other writings, like in the book of John, where they're in someone else's house. They're in Simon the leper's house. And where's Martha? Serving. And that's who she was. We read that, and we'll talk about her being distracted in just a moment. But she was distracted, it says, with much serving. I think she had a servant's heart, and that's why she's doing what she's doing while these people are in her home. And you know what Jesus said about service? Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. How do we view service and servants in this world? You know, I had a little bit of insight to that because when I, when I met my wife, uh, her family ran a family restaurant. And so I was going to college at the time and, and uh, her mother told me, she said, well, hey, I'd like to help you pay for your school, but, but we want you to come help us at the restaurant some. So I did and it wasn't long before my wife and I were running that restaurant. And I learned a lot about people in the restaurant business. And I'll tell you one thing I learned about people. People are spoiled brats. 
We're spoiled brats. We're so used to getting whatever we want and getting exactly how we want. You know, Burger King coined a phrase years ago that said, have it your own way. And we just apply that to every aspect of life. The customer's always right. We, we thought that was about us. That, no, that was about employees treating their customers with dignity. But we as the consumers, we said, that's right. I'm always right, and I always get it my way. And so we treat people that way. And people that serve us, what do we do? We act like they're beneath us. You know, we, we had certain local customers that would come in every single day, and we'd look at the clock. We had a little bell at the back door, and when they opened the door, the bell rang. And sometimes we'd hear the bell ring, we'd look at the clock and just go, because you knew what kind of day it was going to be. Nothing was ever right. The coffee's not strong. They didn't know we had an automatic measurement and every coffee pot was exactly the same. We pushed a button, had the same amount of water, but the coffee's not right today. It doesn't taste right. Something's wrong with this orange juice. You, I asked for over medium and you cook it over medium well. Now, is it okay to request what you asked for? Sure. But I'll tell you what's not okay. To be hateful and rude to people that are serving us. That's not, that's hateful. And as God's people, we need to do better. And I'm going to tell you the saddest thing I learned in the restaurant business is the hardest day we ever had was Sunday lunch when the church crowd came in. They were the most demanding, the most rude and critical, and they were the worst tippers. And I believe that's a terrible representation of God and his character. Jesus said, service is great. And you want to be great? Be a servant. Serve people. Humble yourself. And give and do and help. And that's the problem. But that's the kind of person Martha was. And so the question becomes then, if hospitality and service are such highly exalted virtues, then why did the Lord criticize her? It wasn't because of her hospitality. It wasn't because of her service. It was because of her mindset. And so what we read here is that Martha was distracted with much serving. And I don't know what that word does to you when you see that word distracted, but it automatically infers something. Distraction from what's important or, or from something that should be more pressing or, or, or monumental in that moment. And so what is she distracted from? And I'm going to try to paint a picture. Again, this is just a scenario. I don't know how their house was set up. I don't know if they had a kitchen. So so please give me some license as I try to paint a mental picture of what's going on here. So let's say that their house is set up, and here's Martha, and she's coming back and forth to the kitchen. And Jesus and his disciples are sitting over here where all these young people are at. And here's Mary sitting on the floor. Can you see that? And what is Jesus doing? He's teaching the words of life. And so here's Mary. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha is coming back and forth to the kitchen. And let's say she grabs something, and she brings it to somebody, and she hands it to them, and she looks down at Mary. and she... You ever been there? Any of you sisters who got siblings, you ever been there? You feel like they're being lazy, you're having to do all the work. Why am I the person that has to do all this? And why are you being lazy and ignoring the fact that I'm doing all the work? Is that really what was going on, though? She felt like it was. She truly believed in her mind, this is reality. My sister is neglecting her responsibilities. And that's why she said what she said. She was distracted. But you know what? There's some things that happened to her because she was so distracted. Where's her attention? On Mary. But where's Mary's attention? 
It's on Jesus. Mary's heart, her mind, her entire focus is on the Son of God. you got the Son of God in your home and you're upset, you're mad, you're angry. And it caused her to question not only whether Mary was doing her part, but whether Jesus cared about her troubles. And do you notice that? Lord, do you not care? Do you not care that my sister has left me alone? And then she gets very bold. You get really bold when you start telling the Lord what to do. Therefore, tell her to help me. Obviously, Lord, you're not recognizing this situation is unjust. It's unfair. And you need to do something about it to fix it. Do you ever get there? Things are hard. Things are difficult. Things aren't going your way. And you start to question whether or not God cares. Where did that start? Right here. Right here. That's where it started. She thinks it's real. She thinks all of it's real. It's right here. She just doesn't get it. You know, she missed out on a tremendous blessing. And that blessing is be hospitable. But hospitality is a blessing. It's a blessing. Do you believe that? I think a lot of people don't think it's a blessing. You know why? Because hospitality is hard. It is hard. Hospitality is not about you. When you have people in your home, it's not about you. It's about them. It's about those people. It's about making them feel comfortable, making them feel important. You know, we've, this is not an indictment. Y'all made us feel that way all weekend. We felt very comfortable. They said, make yourself at home. I never didn't feel at home. Do you know what? I've, I've been to some places where People are offended if you don't do things exactly like they want you to. And, you know, we have people in our home quite a bit. My wife, hospitality has always been her love language. Growing up at a restaurant will do that to you. But, but you know what? We, she's got a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff. And we live half a mile from Hobby Lobby, by the way. So if, if you can imagine, we've got a lot of stuff. And so there's stuff on, on tables. There's stuff on walls. And we have a lot of kids in the house. And, you know, when you've got kids in the house, you've got a lot of stuff. You've got a recipe for chaos and disaster. And so kids will come in and they'll want to touch the stuff and their parents are falling out. Oh, don't touch that. Don't touch that. And my wife's always exactly the same way. She says, look, you're the parent. You parent however you want to. I'm just telling you, if you're worried about them breaking something, I don't care. It's just stuff. You know what we'll do if they break the stuff? We'll throw it away or get more stuff. It's just stuff. It doesn't matter. And it's hard to do that, isn't it? Because that's our stuff. That's important to us. Everything's just stuff. And what's the problem? You know, if you have somebody over at your home and the whole time you're micromanaging everything that they do and following them around and shutting doors and don't let them go in here and don't let them go in here, they don't want to come back. We want them to come back. You break my stuff, great. You can come back next week and break more stuff. The people are more important than our stuff. And we got to get out of this American mindset that stuff is what life is about. Because Jesus said that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. You're more important than my home. You're more important than my stuff. And when you get that out of your mind, you can actually be hospitable. And it's no longer a curse. It's a blessing. And that's what Jesus says. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And I'll tell you, if you don't believe that, then stop taking and start giving and you'll start seeing it. Because when you start releasing the energy and the effort and the time and the resources that God has given you, 
you start to recognize that it's not about me, but I'm getting a lot out of it. I'm being blessed by giving more than I am by receiving. I think Paul really embodies this in this statement. And this is, my daughter probably gets sick of me reading this verse because I read it all the time. It's kind of become my mantra, my motto, if you will. And I, I certainly haven't perfected it, but I want to really look at what Paul says. Very short verse here, very impactful what Paul says here to the church at Corinth. He says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I am loved, the less I'm loved. And I want to break this down. First off, I want to notice that Paul, it says, I'm going to spend and be spent. What does that mean, spend and be sent? Spent. Spend and be spent. I'll get that out in a minute. Well, spend probably means exactly what you think it means. It means when you take something of yours and you give it to someone else for something, you invest what you have. But then it's the words be spent that are interesting, and that means to drain the entire account. I'm not just going to spend and give. I'm going to give you everything I've got. And I'm going to do that with what? Gladness. I will gladly spend and be spent. You ever heard somebody say you can't fill an empty cup? We've got to be real careful about pithy, little, quirky sayings. Because here's the thing about you can't uh, pour from an empty cup. What's the cup? Do we have a cup? It's kind of figurative. It's kind of subjective right there. It's just an analogy. But I'll tell you what people are saying. There's just sometimes I'm too tired. I can't give anything. And you can't pour from an empty cup. I get it. Sometimes we're tired. But you know what I see in the life of the people that lived during the time of the resurrection of Jesus? They gave everything they had. Everything they had. And sometimes they were tired and they kept going. Sometimes Paul was thrown outside of a city because they stoned him and they thought he was dead. And you know what he did? He didn't say, well, I'm going home. He got up, he went to the next city and he preached the gospel there. We see people who endured persecution. We saw their families dragged off and they kept their faith in Jesus. They kept serving, they kept giving, they kept loving. You know why? Because it wasn't about them. It was about the souls of men. And that's what Paul says. I'm going to give and spend and I'm going to give everything I've got with gladness for your souls even though you hate me. That's hard. I will love you and love you and love you and I will pour more and more and more even though I'm getting nothing in return. That, my friends, is Christ Jesus. That's Christ Jesus. When it's no longer about instant gratification... It's not about the pats on the backs. It's not about the thank you cards. You know, we get offended when somebody doesn't send us a thank you card. We do something nice for them. And if that's us, we miss the point. We've missed the point. That's on them, not on us. We give and we love because we are Christ's and because that's who Christ is. Jesus says, Martha... You are worried and troubled about many things. You know what he's acknowledging? I care. I know, I know you are troubled. I know you're anxious about these things. But that's not what she wanted. She didn't just want, I'll tell you what she was looking for. We, the kids, I think, we, we probably hear this a lot. She wanted her feelings validated. That's what she wanted. Validate my feelings, Jesus. And he wouldn't do it. You know why? Because their feelings, even though their feelings are real, they're based on a false reality. Her feelings are based on what she thinks is that, number one, Jesus doesn't care. I know I'm pointing over like Mary's over here. And number two, that Mary is being lazy and neglectful. Neither one of those things were true. Jesus cared. But he wasn't going to validate her feelings because it wouldn't have been right. 
And so here's what he says. You're troubled and you're anxious about the many things, but one thing is needed. You ever thought about what that one thing is? One thing is needed. Does that grab your attention? What is that one thing? Mary, he says, has chosen the good part. And it's the good part because it's eternal. It'll never be taken away from her. So let's just think back. Let's say that Jesus says, you're right, Martha. You're right. Mary, what are you doing? Get up. Go help your sister. What just happened? Well, Mary loses the good part. She loses the one thing she needs. She loses the thing that's eternal to give her sister a moment of relief. A moment of relief. Is that fair? No. And so really Martha thinks Mary's being selfish, but, it, but really it's Martha who's being selfish. She just doesn't know it because she is willing to rob her sister of the words of eternal life to give her a moment of relief from the stresses of the daily grind. And see, that's the big part of this lesson. The one thing that you really need in your life. And here's what Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Are you hungry? I don't mean for lunch. Are you hungry for spiritual things? See, Jesus said you will be blessed if you're hungry. You will be blessed if you're thirsty because you will be filled. And here's what the apostle Peter wrote about that. He said this, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now here's one of our problems. Sometimes we read these little buzzwords in scripture and our mind goes to the wrong thing. So when we read the word milk, what do we think? Milk and meat. Well, that's a different context and a different principle. This isn't about milk and meat. He's not saying desire the more base things of Christianity. This just an analogy, and here's what he's saying. What does a baby crave? What's a baby hunger after? Milk. And you know what they do when they don't have milk? They pursue it with their tears and their voice, and they cry out for milk. That's his point. Just like a baby wants milk and it cries out for milk, that's the type of hunger that you need to have for the word of God. And then he says this, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. So I ask you again, are you hungry? You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I want to be. I want to be hungry for the word of God. I want to be hungry for the things of righteousness. So to be honest, I'm just not. And why is that? You know, a couple years ago, we had an Arctic blast come through. I'm sure y'all probably experienced that too. And what we're not used to in the Panhandle of Texas, we get, we get cold, but we're not used to negative 33-degree wind chill. That was insane. And one of the brothers at church there had some cattle, and uh, he'd lost several cattle in that Arctic blast. You know, because cows, they, they're just not used to that. And one day we're driving down the, the main street, and that Arctic blast has come in, and it's super cold outside, and he pulls up next to us at a traffic light, and he says, hey, can you follow us out to the house? He said, I really need your help. And I said, what's going on? And he said, well, we've got a calf in the back. And he said, we need to get this thing out to the house and get it warmed up and get some milk in it because if, if we don't, we're going to lose it. So we follow him out to the house and we go out in their garage and we make this little makeshift kind of corral in the corner of their garage with some, with some pallets and put some hay down and get a heat lamp out there. But 
That's only part of the issue. That's really not going to solve the problem. The, the one thing that this calf needs more than anything else is warm milk. Warm milk. Clostrum is what it was. It's mixed milk. So his daughter, his wife runs in and she starts mixing up this bottle and she brings it out and you think, problem solved, right? No, it wasn't solved. He puts the bottle in the calf's mouth and you know what the calf did? Kept sticking its tongue out, spitting the milk out. I'd illustrate that, but I don't want you to laugh too hard. It didn't want it. Didn't want the milk. And we understand the situation. The calf does not know that if you don't drink the milk, you will die. Doesn't know that. So he's trying different things. You know, he's prying its mouth open. We're squirting milk in the back of its throat. You know, this guy I'm talking about, he's about six foot three. He's a big giant guy. And I watched him lay down in the, on the ground there in this pile of hay with this calf in a headlock with this bottle in its mouth. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, I can't make you want it. You've got to taste it. And that's true for you. Nobody's going to make you want God's word. Nobody can make you want it. Your parents can't make you want it. Your spouse can't make you want it. You've got to taste it. And I will tell you, that calf lived. They named it Lasher because it had these big giant eyelashes. Pretty little calf. But for a while there is touch and go. We didn't think that thing was going to live because it just simply would not eat. Don't you know that's the one thing you need? You need the Word of God in your life, and you need to develop a hunger for it. And I'm going to tell you how you're going to develop that hunger. You've got to taste it. You know, I go to people's houses sometimes to eat. They've got a sign-up sheet. I'm there all week, and I don't eat three meals a day, by the way. Sometimes I eat one meal a day. And when you feed me three meals a day, there are certain meals I sit down to. I'm not even hungry. And I sit down and look at this giant table of food, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I don't, I can't do this. And I start putting food in my plate. And I take a bite, and I go, oh, that's good. All of a sudden, I've got two plates of food that I've eaten there. I wasn't even hungry. But tastes, it'll grab you. You've got to eat God's Word if you want to develop a hunger for it. And I mean really eat it. I don't mean read it. I don't mean just memorize it. I mean you read it. And you read it with focus. And you look at yourself in the mirror of God's word. And you start applying those things to your heart and to your life. And I'll tell you, you won't be able to get enough. You'll never be filled. You'll eat and you'll eat and you'll eat. Don't you see that in Mary? She's so hungry. And Martha, what she doesn't recognize is that while she's feeding everybody else, it's her that needs to be fed. And Jesus was there to do that. So... As we start thinking about the application of this, who are we more like? Mary or Martha? You say, well, I'm more inclined to be busy and do the busy work. Well, don't miss the point, but who are we more like? Mary or Martha? Paul said this in Philippians 3 and 8. He said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung. <clears throat> in order that I may gain Christ. <clears throat> I don't know if you recognize this or not about Paul, but <clears throat> Paul sometimes used what we would call strong language. Not vulgar language, but strong language. And this is strong language. Because here's what he says. That's not worth dung. 
And we don't use that word a lot, probably dung, unless you're a farmer or rancher. You know, I, I, I don't use that word a lot, but I think we all know what it is, right? It's waste. It's fecal matter. That's what it is. I know, that's gross, but that's what he, he's trying to make a point here. We need to understand his point. How much would you pay for a big file, a pile of fecal matter? Somebody said, you said, name your price. I'm out. There's nothing I'd pay for that. Because it's worthless. You say, well, you know, fertilizer, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. Now, here's the question. Were the things that he's identifying here, were they dung? No. They became dung. He counted them. He recognized them as such, even though they were valuable. Go back in the chapter and look at what he's talking about. It was his Jewish heritage, him being a Benjamite, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee concerning the law. It was his entire identity. He'd spent his whole life dedicated to it. And he said, now it's nothing but a big pile of dung. And I've had to count it that way. You know why? Because some things are important until you recognize they're in my way. They're in between me and Jesus. And now that I know where it's at, I need to count it as dung and move it out of the way and count it as worthless. Because whatever is keeping me from Jesus, whatever is keeping me from knowing Jesus, I've got to count it as dung and count it as loss. You know what it all starts with? Attention. Attention. You say, well, that's strange. Attention. You know what God desires from you most? Your attention. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your mind. Focus your mind on those things. You know, we talk about addiction sometimes. You ever thought about what addiction really is? I, I suppose the best definition of addiction that I've ever heard was that addiction is like a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. Now, let me explain what that means. It means that as you become addicted to something, everything that you could see just disappears inside of this tunnel, and all you can see at the end of that tunnel is that thing you're addicted to. Now, you may think we're talking about drugs or alcohol, pornography, things like that. Those are bad addictions, aren't they? But you know what? Anything can be a bad addiction if it comes between me and God. And when we get that tunnel vision, that's the problem. Because, see, there's a way that God designed us to work. And, you know, Brother Michael talked about the eyes yesterday and what amazing things that our eyes are. And, you know, they really are amazing. And, and I'm not going to explain this because I couldn't do it adequately. But what I will say is this. That I know that there are two parts of our vision that we all easily recognize. There's what's called our focal range. And everything inside of that focal range is what? It's well-defined. If our eyes are working correctly, it's well-defined. Everything is, we call it high definition, high resolution. And then outside of that is what's called the periphery, and it starts about right there. And then it moves all the way out here. And for some of us, our periphery is different, right? You say, why are we talking about this? I'll tell you why we're talking about this. If you were to ask me today, you say, Ian, how many spots do you have on your hand? Well, number one, I'm a ginger, so that's going to take a moment. Number two, if they're out here, I don't know. I'm not, I can see my hands. I know they're moving. I can't see the spots or count the spots. What do I have to do? Bring them into the focal range. You say, I still don't know why we're talking about this. You will in a minute. You ever wake up angry? You ever wake up angry? You ever wake up angry about what's going on in Washington, D.C.? You ever do that? 
You ever mad about what's going on in our government? I want to tell you something, friends. If you're sitting in front of the TV all day watching Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, you've got the world right here and you've got God right here. And that's why you're mad every day. You're part of the kingdom that's everlasting. You've got a king that sits on the throne and he's in control. I'm not saying don't care about what's happening around you. But you can make an impact within the kingdom that you're a part of. And a lot of those things that we're often mad about and angry about, we have no control over it. No control. And we spend our attention focused on those things. And when you put something here, you've got to do something with God. And so what do we do? We put him here. We can still see him. We know he's there. But the details start to become obscure. But we're really focused on this. And it could be that anything in life that gets in your focal range and takes your attention off of God. But here's the thing. If God's got my attention, he's got everything. He's got my mind. He's got my heart. He's got my soul. He's got my strength. And when I put something else in its place, in his place rather, and I'm focused on that, it gets my mind and my heart and my soul and my strength. That's all I think about. We've got to be careful See, that's what's happened to Martha here. Her attention is on the wrong things. Luke chapter 8 and verse 14 says this about the cares of life. It says, Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Now if you read this, you start noticing a pattern of things here. These are worldly and earthly things. But you ever notice the word choked in this passage? You ever been choked? I used to do MMA a little bit, did jujitsu with my, and my brother-in-law and I would roll a lot. And one of the things that I realized really quickly is, is all the stuff I saw in wrestling on WWF, WWE now, uh, when they got people in a choke hold and they'd do this and drop their hand, that's all fake. About five seconds, sometimes three seconds of someone having you in an actual choke hold, you will tap as fast as you can or you'll go to sleep. And it is a really, really terrifying feeling when the lights start going out. You ever been choked? A lot of people are being choked and they don't even know it. They're being choked by this. They feel it, but they ignore it. They try to ignore it. A lot of people are being choked. You know what that feels like? It feels like you never have enough time to get what you need to do done. You never have enough time to spend with family. You never have enough time to do things for God. You never have enough time to work. You never have enough time to spend in recreation. You're being choked. You know why? Because we fill our plates so much. And we've, we've got all these things that our mind is, is centered around and our attention. And all of a sudden, we care about what's worldly and what's earthly and not about the one thing that we need. And you know what Timothy said about this? He said this. Those who desire, I'm sorry, Paul said to Timothy, rather, he said those who desire to to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know one of the reasons why we have nice houses and we've got comfortable places to live is because this is a very prosperous land, isn't it? You know, we've enjoyed comforts, probably most of us, for all of our life. And is that wrong to have things? No. It's not wrong to have things. It's not even wrong to be rich. You read later in the chapter where he says, charge them that are rich to do what? To share and distribute those things for God's glory, for his kingdom. 
So it isn't condemn being rich, but here's what he says. When that's your desire, when that's what you pursue after, when that's what you're hungry for, when that's what's got your attention, when riches are here and God is here, here's what happens to the faithful. You ever heard people talk about a business venture? And they say, I've got this great business plan. Here's our business plan. They laid out, they say, that's great. That's going to work. That's going to succeed. And they go, and we're going to get so rich, we're all going to be miserable. Nobody thinks that way, right? Nobody thinks that way. But listen to Paul's words. He says, those who hunger, those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation and a snare. You know what a snare is? That's a trap, like a bear trap. Into foolish and harmful desires. And it drowns them. You ever thought you were drowning? That's a scary feeling. He said it drowns them. And he says, you know, the love of money, not money, not having money, not possessing money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he said, in some people, they've left God. They've strayed from the faith. They've pierced themselves. They've erred. And they got a lot of sorrows. You know, one of the things that we have here is even if you're not rich, you can live like the rich. All you have to do is have a good credit score. You can get a credit card and you can run up a bunch of debt on it. You can buy toys. You buy four-wheelers and boats and all kinds of things. And do you believe this is true? Do you believe that's true? Now, I'll tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying taking out a loan is wrong. I have, I've got a loan for my house. You know, I couldn't have bought it without it. I don't have $130,000 just laying around. Most people don't. We've got to get loans for certain things. But here's where it gets really bad is when we just start taking advantage of the loan system and debt, and we just start getting debt after debt after debt after debt after debt. It's unmanageable. And so then what we, what we have to do is we have to go get overtime hours or take a second job because now we can't afford all of the toys that we couldn't afford in the first place. And so we're paying someone else extra money to pay for the things we couldn't pay for because they paid for it. And they're our master, and we are their slave, and we don't even know it. You know how I know this? Because I've done it. I was in my early 20s, and they sent me a credit card in the mail. I don't see that a whole lot anymore, but they sent me an actual credit card in the mail. And they sent me to put a number on there. And it was for $300. And I thought, okay. So I got this credit card. And I'm a musician, and I thought, I'm going to buy a set of drums. So I got on eBay, and I bought this little set of drums for like $280. And I made the first payment. I was like, 20 bucks. I'm like, that is just fine with me, $20. Well, then the next month payment count, it was like 110 bucks. I'm like, whoa, what? Well, I didn't read the fine print for one. I didn't know that there was, I didn't even know what a variable interest rate was, but it was like 29%. I was making $350 a week, and I had a $300 credit card. And it looked very alluring, right? Do you know what they they did when I couldn't pay the payment? They called me. The audacity of these people to call me. And then when I recognized their number, I wouldn't answer it. You know why? Because I'd start sweating and my heart would race and my blood pressure would go up. And it's probably some three-foot-tall guy in a cubicle somewhere. But but we get this, like it's this giant monster and they're on this throne and they're our master. And Be careful. Because hear what Jesus said. No man can serve Two masters. God does not forbid you to have nice things or to work or to enjoy life. 
But when money's here and God's here, we've got a problem. Because whatever's here is your master. It's what will dictate what you do in life. So we've got to be careful about that. And lastly, are we robbing others of the good part? You say, well, I'm, I'm not sure I follow you there. Well, let, well we're going to talk about it. As we close, we're going to talk about that. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know what all these things is? The necessities of life. I, I feel really comfortable with asking this question. Raise your hand if the only thing you have today is food and clothing. Raise your hand, please. You know, I can't ever remember a time in my life not having any clothing, not having any food. But there are people today that live life like that. They don't go to work so they can buy a boat or pay for high-speed internet or big TVs or stuff like that. I'll tell you what they go to work for so their family can eat that day. So were these people, and that's who Jesus was talking to. They were worried about the necessities of life. And he says, don't worry about the necessities. God will take care of you, but you've got to seek the kingdom first. Put the kingdom here. And God will add those things to your life. Maybe you've heard this illustration before, and you may hear it and say, you told that story wrong. Well, first of all, I've got the floor, so I didn't tell it wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell it my way. But the illustration goes like this. A professor walks in one day and he has four jars sitting up on top of a table. And he tells the students that day, he says, we're going to fill these jars today. And three of them are already got components in it. They're already full and there's one that's empty. And the containers uh, all have different things in them. Big rocks, little rocks, and then one has sand in it. And he says, well, what do y'all want to do first? And one of the kids says, hey, pour the sand in and let's pour it slow. That'll be satisfying. So they fill it up with sand. He goes, now what? And he's like, what do you mean now what? You filled the jar up. He said, well, let's put something else in it. They said, you can't, it's full. He said, well, let's put something else in the empty jar we just emptied. So they said, well, one of the students, hey, I got an idea. Let's put the big rocks in first. Then we'll put the little gravel in. We can shake it and shimmy it around, and it'll fall down between the cracks. And someone said, then, then you can put some sand in it. So they do that. And then he just sits there. And they're all looking at him clueless, like, what in the world is going on? Kind of probably what you've been looking at me like during some of these analogies, right? These obscure analogies. And he looks at him and he says, listen, this is your life. This jar represents your life. And the truth is, we all... Act and behave like we've got an infinite amount of time, an infinite amount of resources, and we just don't. And the truth is, your life can only be filled with so many things before it gets entirely full. And you know what? If you fill those things up with the things like this, there's no room for this. And these things are really, really important. Really important. But you know, even if you fill up your life full of this, there's no room for this. And these are even more important than these things. Now you may think because I'm an evangelist that I do full-time church work that I, I don't have any kind of clue about this kind of thing, right? I've got kids. <laughs> I've got kids. 
My son is now about to turn 19 years old, and when he was eight or nine years old, I started recognizing he was really athletic. And I know everybody thinks their kid's a prodigy. Uh, I'm just telling you, he was very athletic. Uh, he was the fastest kid uh, in, in his school until some kid came along and was a little bit faster. But he was always the most coordinated. He, he, just, he just had it. And so I thought, well, we've got to hone this ability. We've got to make sure that he gets to do this and experience this and, and, and be his best. And so that's what we did. And I asked him, I said, what sport do you want to play? And he said, basketball. And I'm going, yes. Because that's me. I love basketball. That was my sport. I mean, I was married to it when I was in school. It's all I thought about. So we started playing basketball. But I'll tell you what we did. We, we lived right across from the gymnasium there in Allison, Texas, and we had a key to it. So we could go over there, and I'd teach them about fundamentals. So we're working on footwork. We're working on dribbling drills. We're working on court awareness. We're working on passing and shooting form and everything you can imagine. We're learning that. And guess what? When we start playing basketball, he's the best kid on the team. And guess who's coaching? This guy right here. And man, it's fun. I'm telling you, it is so much fun. And then basketball's over, and guess what? Baseball season. Let's do baseball. So we did baseball. And I started realizing, this kid's got an arm. And so guess what we're doing when he gets home from school? I live right up the street from the baseball field. So we walk down there, and I'm ducked down behind the plate, and this kid's throwing me pitches, and I'm working with him. You've got to get your hips out a little quicker. Let your arm lag behind a little more. You, you, you can't do it that way. And we worked, and we worked, and we worked. And he made a great baseball player. But then football season came along. And I'm like, well, you're tall, you're skinny, you can run fast, you can jump high. I'm think natural receiver. So we're out in the front yard, and we live on a dirt road, and I'm throwing 45-yard bombs, and yes, that's a bomb for me. Throwing 45-yard bombs to my 8-year-old son, and he's catching them in stride, hands stretched out. And I'm like, he's got it. I didn't realize the quarterback that was 9 years old couldn't throw the ball about 10 foot, and it would tumble end over end. But hey, we worked on it, and he got good at it. Guess who coached? This guy right here. <laughs> And they recognized my dedication. And they even came to me and said, do you want to be the president of the Little League? And I said, sure. Guess who did that job? My wife did because I was out doing church work. <laughs> and we had a ton of fun. You know, when my son was eight years old, he'd have probably done anything that his father asked him to do. Anything, he asked, anything I asked him, he just wanted to make dad happy. And I'll tell you, I enjoyed that time that we spent together. But to be honest... I look back at that time and I say, you know what? We were so married to that. It just dictated everything we did with our life. And I was drowning. I was drowning. I was still getting church work done, but I was drowning. Everything was centered around my kid. And we're driving here and spending money here and spending time here and making sure he can go do this. And it came up where we were doing AAU ball. And I said, son, you can do this, but I'm out. And he goes, no, that's fine. I'm, I don't care. <laughs> I thought it was all about him. I've done a lot of thinking about that, and I'm going to tell you something. I, I don't feel comfortable telling you this, but I'm going to tell you because I think you need to hear it. There was a part of me that wanted my son to succeed, and it was all about him, but there was another part of me that loved standing on the sideline going, That's my boy! That's my boy! When he was eight years old, I'll tell you, my son's mom was a sponge. I could have took him with me and showed him how to serve God. I could have taught him how to preach. Taught him how to read God's Word and love God's Word and develop a taste and a love for God's Word. And I wasted that opportunity. 
And we chose to drown instead and be distracted. I'm not saying my son's a bad person today, but I'll tell you, it's limited his growth because we got sucked into the life that everybody else is living and we took his attention off of God. And that's the thing. When you start putting your attention on something, your kids will too. They are not dumb. You can tell them God's important, but if you don't put God here and you put him here, they'll grow up and they'll put God here and not here. And fathers, you cannot depend upon your wife to be the spiritual leader of your home. Get in the game. Don't be a passive father. Don't rob your children of the one thing that they need trying to buy them happiness through worldliness and toys and everything else. Be a father. Be a spiritual leader. Show them what it means to love God and to serve God. You know what they'll do? They'll develop a love for God. Mothers, your daughters, they don't need to be worried about what's fashionable all the time. And what everybody else is experiencing and doing. But what they do need to do is love God because one of these days, none of that will matter. That stuff quit mattering to me when I was 19 years old. I didn't care what anybody in high school thought of me. I didn't care about all the things I experienced. I had to live my life. They'll have fun. I watch these kids with other children from the church all summer long. You know what? They develop relationships that will last them a lifetime. A lifetime. That will strengthen and help build and cultivate their faith and keeping their attention on the right things. When those opportunities come, let your kids be a part of that. But don't rob them. Don't rob them of the thing that they need. That's the real story of Mary and Martha. It's not about the kitchen. It's about the one thing that everybody in here needs, and that's Christ Jesus. Because without him, I don't care how successful you are in life. You can have the biggest house and the best health and everything else that goes along with it. But if you stand before God and he says, depart, you lost. And we've got to stop trying to teach our kids to be winners and start teaching them how to be servants. Teach them to be servants. The lesson is yours. If you have not put your attention on God, it's time to refocus. Let's put God back here. I know that's scary for some people. I've got to make a bunch of changes in my life to put God here. It's worth the changes. It's worth it. And God will bless you spiritually more than you could possibly imagine. But we've got to put him here and take him off the sidelines. Friends, today, if you don't know God, if you don't know Christ Jesus, I don't know what may be holding you back, but if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, why don't you give him your life today and be united with him and buried in baptism with him? Become a part of that family, part of that kingdom, and then this, whatever's happening in this world, it doesn't really matter that much. You know why? Because heaven is our home. That's our destination. Jesus is king. Do you want that? Come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.